Welcome to the Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Coming in hot. Coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, I found a sucky bug in Absinthe the other oh. day. What was it? Tell me about it. I want to know. Okay, so uh, if you have a, a few attributes in a row, and I know it works with a couple, with a backslash at, at the end of it, so you get quite a bit of escaping going on. And if it's the last attribute that has like a backslash at the end of it, um, which turns into like, I guess there's like four backslashes or whatever, it parses just fine. Uh, the GraphQL query. Mm-hmm. If the if an attribute before that has backslashes, then it airs out. Ah. Even with like the exact same code. And, and only also, only if the attributes are on the same line, like if you have no return after your comma. Interesting. Oh, no. So you, what did you do? Uh, well, I wrote a test. As you do. Yeah, put in a put in a bug report, mm-hmm. and um, I I don't really know uh, Leakser Leakser right is that what it's called L E E X E R the the, the, the Lex, Erlang Lexer the Erlang Lexer yeah yeah mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I don't really know it very well Leakser um, Leakser yeah just enough to be uh, a pain just just enough to like kind of follow what's going on mm-hmm. um. Somebody from the Kansas City Elixir group is like, it's probably in one of these four lines. This is the second time I mentioned them, so I'm just advertising for them. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, his name's Sean. Uh, I forget his last name, um, but thanks, Sean. So he he pointed out kind of where it would be, and I I dug in a little to the documentation, and it it may not be the most perfect fix in the world, but it ended up that I just needed to add a backslash character. Oh, to escape something? To the Lexer. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Nailed so it. There's, there's a pull request out there on Absinthe. Um, no real feedback yet, but we'll see. They may come in and be like, that's not how it should be fixed, but at least it'll point somebody in the right direction, mm-hmm. hopefully. So, yeah. Yeah, that was cool. And it was, it was causing uh, the current client some pain. Uh, I actually had decided that I would try to just band-aid it and put things on different lines mm-hmm. but i i found out that you can throw some stuff into a field and and like because i was just splitting on commas <laughs> and, and and adding adding a return in there and then if they throw a comma into the middle of the field of course it blows everything up right uh, which i knew would would happen but was trying to figure out a way around it and without using a real parser yeah, that's pretty difficult just because you have to like match quotes and right. all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, the parsing rules need some amount of history. Right. Right. They need state. And so there's not like a, there's not a quick fix there. So yeah, uh, I moved on as you do. Yeah. But so, but you've acknowledged a, the problem, which I think is the important part. Yeah. I would really like to make property tests for the parser and put in like any valid attribute string, including escape characters and stuff like that. I'm surprised they don't have that actually. 
I did not see it anywhere in there. I guess it'd be a decent amount of work. Um, I'm trying yeah. to think. I mean, but there's probably, I mean, the grammar is probably already predefined by the GraphQL spec, right? Like typically for specs like that, they'll give you the BNF rules, which oh, probably pretty reasonably translate into uh, leaks and yek or whatever the, <laughs> the, 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 the Erlang compiler uh, thingy is called or the, the parser yeah, generator I think is called. I think it's yek, Y-E-C-C. And it's based Leaks. off of Yak, Leak. right? The C parser. Yeah. Or not parser. Uh, parser generator. Yeah. yeah. It's actually a parser generator uh, streamer. <laughs> that was a perfect voice that you used there. That's my internet voice. <laughs> well, well, actually, it's a parser generator. <laughs> oh, I think that might be show title right there. That's my my internet voice. It's too early in the show. We we can't pick a show title already. It has to be later in the show. There's a five minute rule. It has to be after the first five minutes. Oh man! So that's what I've been up to. It's chasing this absinthe thing, Um, and I don't know a whole lot about absinthe. I have very um, cursory knowledge of it. I've used it just a little bit. There's a lot of stuff in absence. When you say you don't know much about it, do you mean that you don't know much about GraphQL generally yeah, or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gen- generally, I, I, I know a little bit, um, but not, not a ton. I've, I've written a few of the back end pieces, mutations and stuff like that that I've needed. But mm-hmm. that as far as the full, um, I want to call GraphQLs like a, it's a pretty, pretty big system. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but as far as the whole a system lot of stuff. goes there's a lot of yeah. stuff in there yeah i don't really i don't like really a whole type algebra you know it's 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 a it's a big boy there's, there's a lot of stuff inside of that inside of that uh that document yeah yeah uh, i you know i've i've heard some people recently um suggesting to use graphql for embedded development and pulling data from multiple sensors and and organizing it together. Uh, so, and my, that's the way the team is that I'm, I'm working on. That's the way they're using it. And I had never, never really tried it that way before. Sorry. I had to grab a, I had to get a seltzer. Uh, a seltzer. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you European? No, <laughs> this is like off brand. Oh, I, I like LeCroix. LeCroix. <laughs> <laughs> My son was just talking about that the other day. He said he wanted to have three dogs. He wanted to name them Sprite, Dr. Pepper, and LaCroix. LaCroix. <laughs> Coming in hot this week. Yeah. <laughs> this Sorry seltzer's really that. working. This seltzer's really working. Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, four bottles of scotch in here. I can just take a pull <laughs> off of one of them. We'll see where we go. Really uh, even it out. <clears throat> yeah. So I, I had a I had a locker at a at a local tasting room here, mm-hmm. and since I'm moving, I had to close it out. And I haven't really mm. been in there in like four months. And I'm in a Scotch club that every quarter they put a bottle of Scotch in there, right? And I don't I don't drink enough to drink a bottle of Scotch even in a quarter unless it's at my house because sometimes right after putting children to bed. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You just want alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, we have any of that rubbing depends on how many left, depends on how many magic treehouse books you had to read. Uh, uh, oh, we're past that age now. It's just the fight to know it's mm, actually bedtime. Mm-hmm. Now, now to be fair, most of the time I'm fighting my kids when they're trying to stay up. They're staying up and reading books, right? So you can't complain a whole lot right, that they're yeah. reading books. Uh, I remember my oldest would like pretend to be asleep for an hour. I don't know how the heck you can lay still for an entire hour and then not fall asleep, but maybe that's my age. And then I would catch her reading a book like an hour after bedtime, her light would come on and she'd start reading. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My daughter is very similar. She's about, she's six and she'll lay in bed and then she'll turn the light back on and she'll keep reading and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it's bad. I mean, I, I feel some amount I don't know. It's it's a tough parental parenting decision of do I tell them that they can't do this or do I uh, do I need to like put some limits on this? In keeping with tradition, when Anna's not here, it's just full on dad cast. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> let's talk about parenting. Um, and our borderline yeah. alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So I mean, so. How are you finding um, GraphQL to be like, do you, do you feel like that's a good solution to the problems that you're trying to work on? Do you feel like it was a good fit? Um, do you like using it? What are the things that you've run into so far that you are into, not into that kind of stuff? So, so that that's hard for me to answer because I am so little into that part of the system mm-hmm. that, that I'm almost, uh, I almost never touch it. Like I, I don't really, the front end is all kind of one person doing some react. I don't, I don't know anything about it really. Haven't touched it. Um, I mean, I've done front end work multiple times before, but not on this project. Um, and so, so really it's the GraphQL part is pretty abstracted away from me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I like that, writing a mutation is is pretty simple but as as far as how that works from top to bottom i'm i don't know enough yet to to say um in some ways in looking at it from from the perspective that i've seen it i i'm not seeing a ton of the advantages and it feels very over engineered um but but again i'm not utilizing it enough to realize the benefits because I'm not writing the part that's actually using the GraphQL. The clients or whatever needs to be talking right. with that thing. Yeah. Right. Um, but the people who are doing that portion seem to really appreciate the the power that it gives them. So to me, it's it's still worth putting in that, that instead of them asking me to write custom stuff constantly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of helpful. <laughs> That's my problem with the rest with rest in general is everything becomes one off. Like all these endpoints become one off endpoints that have this massive payload of things that have this specific business logic behind them. I mean, they become they become so much less about, uh, you know, and I'm conflating crud and rest here but they become so much less about resources and so much more about arbitrary RPC calls made over HTTP to an endpoint uh, right? where you get some payload that's not specified very well back. 
And there's all these sort of ad hoc uh, things that you put on top of of REST endpoints, like JSON APIs or Swagger, all these like pseudo conventions to try right. to make these APIs documenting and try to explain what they do. And all of it sucks. All of it is not fun. Um, and and I've never used a REST API where I thought everybody was getting the best experience that they could have. It's like a mediocre experience across every single client, across every developer who has to use that thing. <laughs> and you have to I write all the dumb clients for these things. Like I, if I never write another HTTP client, as long as I live, it'll be too soon. Because <laughs> I don't want to have to care about timeouts for all this stuff. And I don't want to build circuit breakers into it. And I don't want to build caching into it. And I don't want to build like back off into it. I'm so sick of writing clients that then you have to maintain and keep up to date with all these endpoints and that pull back and ah, it's just a giant pain. It's a waste of time. And everybody wants a slightly different piece of data set mm -hmm. and they, they want it all in one call if they can get it. So, I mean that, that power of GraphQL, I definitely see. And it's, it's a far cry from soap. <laughs> well, there's so many, good there were so many good ideas in soap i mean soap was one of these things that failed because of implementation not because it had well it had a couple fundamentally bad ideas inside of there and it grew to encompass a whole lot more things than it ever needed to really encompass but there's lots of very good ideas at the heart of soap self-documenting apis that's a huge one. You want self-documenting APIs. You and want... people tried to do that with REST APIs and, mm -hmm. and JSON API, like you said, right? So mm -hmm. that you could request back like an example object or something like that. Right. Um, you want clients that are smart out of the box and like you don't want to have to generate those things. You just, or you don't want to have to write those things rather. Like it would be nice to just be able to generate clients that behave in a specific way that have specific configurable tunable fields but that have trade-off that that have characteristics about them that you can you know opt into right so um, for instance being able to say all clients do back off and this is how they do back off and here's the jitter and here's how it works and here's how many failed requests will go through and that's just built it and then you can like tune it to make sense for your application um, that's a huge benefit you know, there's there's all these sorts of things that actually were make coordination between services and between systems useful, <laughs> like and, and easy to reason about. I don't know. <clears throat> I, I, I think that's I think that's a major point in GraphQL's favor, um, because you can start to reason about what is this thing going to return to me? It's introspectable. You can pull down, you know, you can hit that, uh, whatever the, the, the metadata endpoint is for a GraphQL service and retrieve all the type information. So you could theoretically right. construct a client uh, from that type information. Um, it doesn't do, it doesn't go as far as to include back off logic, retry logic, uh, circuit breakers. Like you still have to build all that into the client. But for a lot of things, GraphQL handles a lot of the self-documenting stuff, a lot of the, the type algebras, a lot of checking to make sure you were pulling back stuff uh, correctly. And it handles the problems of, I just don't want to request this many fields and have, and, you know, expand my, the blob of data I need to send over the network. I want faster payloads or whatever. Right. I, I do 
I mean, speaking of fast speed, like I do worry about, it seems like GraphQL could be pretty abused by pulling back, like let's pull back everything in the entire system. Uh, and I, I have a tendency in the past to have seen how other APIs are being used and people really do want all their data in one call. Yeah. And, I, and I get that, but but that can be really hard on a system. And GraphQL really gives them that ability to a point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, now there are things in there that that mitigate that, um, but it it just then then people are like, well, why can't I do this? Why can't you just back that timeout off of just a little bit so I can get that one more piece of data that I need? So there's there's that slippery slope because the cost of adding that. Um, program programmer time wise is is so little that people expect it to be able to do more so it's like nearly too powerful <laughs> right well yeah you practically need a query planner for some of these things that some of the requests that people want to make to graphql endpoints i've definitely seen that in different clients you know they're requesting i want this user all this data about the user and then i want their followers their followers followers and their followers 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 and then get all their names of those people and then, you know, I mean, it's like it just expands right. uh, without bound if when you give people power to do that. Um, there was a really good paper that came out recently, and I'll find it. I think it was covered on uh, the morning paper about detecting complex GraphQL queries. So uh, that's a good read, and I'll find that and put that in the show notes. What's, wait, 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 what's the morning paper? Oh, you don't know about the morning paper? No. Oh yeah, I did that thing that I hate when people do when the little hipster. <clears throat> I was that feigned surprise well, that you well, hadn't heard actually, about that yet. <laughs> Well, actually, uh, the Morning Paper is a great website that has all kinds of write-ups about different papers. I can't believe you don't know about this. <laughs> oh man. Well, are actually, you, 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 you kind of sound like a muppet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's transitioning between. Um, between Muppet and and, inter- and internet. <laughs> uh, oh man. Okay. So you're gonna have to send me a link to the morning paper. I'm sending you a link to the morning paper right now. Yay. Uh, the morning paper is fantastic. It's probably the best thing you can put in your inbox every morning. And uh, it's by uh, a guy named Adrian Collier. And uh, he just takes papers and does write-ups on them that are in very human-readable, uh, very nice sort of like cliff, almost like cliff notes. To say they're cliff notes is almost a little bit demeaning to, to the work that he's doing. He breaks these papers down and explains them in context of other papers, and explains them in context of other sources, and he makes all this stuff really, really uh, accessible. Um, and nice. it's a it's a fantastic fantastic resource um just totally check it out and uh subscribe to it that'll uh, mean that i have to read less papers because right now i read a paper and then i gotta go read 10 more to figure out that paper and then then read five off of each of those mm-hmm. and by the time i read all the papers about it i'm like the hell was that first paper i don't even remember <laughs> right that and i never remember what the papers are i start telling people like, oh yeah i read this paper and and it was about this and and they're like, what, what's the name of it? I don't, I don't know. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Something, somebody gave me a great piece of advice when I started reading a lot of papers. And they said, you, the one key thing to keep in mind when you read 
papers that are all sort of about a specific topic is that these papers are part of a bigger ongoing conversation that a very small group of people is having. And this is the official way that they have a communication with each other. Like this is how they hash out ideas and how they have a discussion. And so you often need to look at the references and figure out what context you're missing because you're probably missing an important part of the conversation, the overall conversation about this topic. Um, so, you know, for me, when I read these distributed systems papers, you often have to like find the references and go back a bit to understand what they're talking about, why they're talking about things, and, you know, assumptions that they're making, uh, because they expect you to know that stuff as part of the larger ongoing conversation. Right. They expect that you've read some paper somewhere about X that they're utilizing. Right. Well, because at the end of the day, the com- the paper isn't for you. The paper is for as a part of this bigger conversation. So you have to be aware of it. You can't just drop into the middle of the conversation and then start to understand what all is going on and start to really have informed opinions about it because you're not aware of what else is happening, what other things have been said, what other discoveries have people made, what other context is there, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's like logging into IRC in the middle of a conversation. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Man, if they only had a forum, Chris. <laughs> You're uh, out of your that, element, Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a child who just wanders into the theater. <laughs> The, the the great part of this is nobody knows exactly what we're talking about here when when we talk about IRC and forums. So <laughs> I think we should let that go and just let people wonder about it. <laughs> but uh, I, but yeah, that's a good that's that's always useful. Well, I'm glad that you're I'm glad you're um your GraphQL you're solving your GraphQL problems. Yeah yeah I, I mean. I, I still don't understand the full thing, but I, that's that's the great thing that I find about open source and solving a little problem. If you have like a little bug like this, you don't have to necessarily know everything in order to solve a problem. Now, it might help you. It might help you a lot if you understand the full system. And maybe somebody comes in and sees my fix and says, oh, that's not actually how we should probably fix it because of this other thing in the system that I just don't know about. Right. But it gets the conversation going. And if if not, hey, great. I might just say have saved a lot of people a lot of time mm-hmm. by adding a character. Now, it took me all day to figure out that I needed to add that character. But, hey, you can contribute to open source without having to know everything. So get out there and do it. Because <laughs> you'll learn. That's how you learn everything. Right. <laughs> oh, man. I, I didn't mean to go into that with a lesson. That's okay. On on contributing, but oh man, what else is going on? Um, you want to talk about purely functional data structures? No, I hate this book. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you hate that book? That book uh, is so good. That book is because I I I, st- I still am not quite understanding this amateur ice time thing i really do think that we should do a screencast of of uh, exercise 5-1 okay so for for reference you're leaving out a lot of context here 
Okay, this is people. Uh, purely functional data structure. I realize that this conversation is really just for you and I, but there are also people on the internet who listen to us have this conversation. So for their benefit, I think you ought to explain what you're talking about. <sighs> okay. So, uh, you know, a long time ago, we talked about how we were going to do an episode on purely functional data structures because the book came up in conversation and uh, we really want to read it. It has been a difficult read for me. Um, I think that I'm, I'm missing some, some fundamental uh, things in here that the book assumes that you have, or if it's not assuming it's just not explaining in a way that I quite get it. So Mm -hmm. it's taking way longer for us to get to read this book or to, to talk about this book than I expected. I thought, Oh yeah, get the book in mid June. And at the end of June, we'll, we'll, do an episode on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just not, blaze through it. Yeah. NBD. Not for me. Yeah. I don't feel so bad because whenever I had dinner with James, he was like, friend of the Chris show. said, yeah, yeah. For James Edward Gray, friend of the show. Uh, when, when James said that, you know, when you said head side on the show, Chris, that this is a book that you keep on the shelf and that it's, it's good reference. James is like, the hell is he talking about? That book is hard. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> It's not just me. I'm not dumb. I just am missing something. <laughs> um, okay, so so the exercise five. We were talking about amateurized time and and the two different methods. Uh, I call it the, I called it the farmer's method, it's the, bank, <laughs> the banker's method, the farmer's uh, method. Yeah. I well, there's a long story behind that. So uh, we'll do that some other time. Um, so there's there's the the banker's method and the physicist method. Physicist yeah, physicist method. method. Bankers yeah. and physicists. Ba- and what bankers we're talking, and physicists. Sorry, I'm, I'm gonna let you finish. Go ahead, but no, we're no, talking I'm a, about. I'm gonna let. I'm gonna let me. I'm gonna let me finish. <laughs> let me finish. Um, um, title. title of the show. Anyway, uh, yeah. okay. so we're you, talking you about amateurized. We're talking about amateurized time, which is a way of modeling. Uh, the time costs of a data structure slash algorithm uh, that is a little bit different than big O notation or, or as we would say, uh, asymptotic time. So, so for me, it feels like, you know, big O notation is more about an individual function and how long that takes. And in reading this, it amateurized time is more about the overall, all of the functions time right all of the possible things that you can do with this data structure like a rating for the whole data structure and all of its functions right right Mm -hmm. so instead of saying like inserts big o of n and um uh pop is big o of one instead you would say hey this this entire data structure is i don't know five right (laughs) right so with with asymptotic time asymptotic asymptotic time you would uh you're what you're measuring is worst case scenario that's this is a thing that many of us who are familiar with big o uh who who learned about data structures and algorithms that's that's how we talk about things is worst case time and and a lot of times just for people who haven't done this is that you're looking at 
how many comparisons you have to go through frequently. That's mm-hmm. one of the things. So it's like if you have to step through a for loop to go over an entire list, right? it's big O of N. If you have to do that, like a list of lists, then it's N squared or right. M times N. And, it's, and that's the worst case because if you have a linked list, meaning you start at the beginning and you always have to traverse all the way through the beginning to the end, uh, the worst case scenario in terms of operations that you need to do is in operations where in is the number of elements in the list. Uh, this is, and that's, that's how you would find stuff, right? There's other ways to solve a searching problem, let's say, but if you have a list, if that's the data structure you've chosen to use, then your worst case is O of N. And like you say, if there's lists of lists and we need to find something inside of the, the deeper list, then, you know, then it, then, it, then it changes the complexity in some way. Right. Exponentially. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In some way, depending on whatever the structures are, depending on the algorithm you're using, right. plus the data structure you're using, will tell you how what the worst case scenario is. And that's often what we're using to determine, uh, to measure data structures against each other. Because that's, you know, there's, there's math behind that. Um, we can, it, it starts to make, it's an easy way. It's an easy way to, to talk about uh, data structures. Now, this presents a lot of problems when you have immutable data structures. Because immutability, by necessity, means that we have to copy things, right? We cannot mutate it. We can't go into the, you know, if you, you, you can't, if you have an array, you can't just go into the middle of it and change things uh, at that like point in memory and right. maintain you, immutability. Since, since it's implemented as a linked list in, in functional languages, if you want to change something in the middle, you actually have to copy everything all the way back to the beginning to point to that one in the middle. And then the one in the middle can point to the old copy of everything after it. Right. So you only have to copy the first part of it. Right. Well, at bare minimum, you have to copy everything. Right. So right. that's the, if you're that's the, to put that's the, the real yeah. takeaway is at the bare minimum, you, at, if you do it in the most naive way possible, you copy everything changing just one, just cha- changing just the element you want to change. Now, if you want to optimize that, one of the ways you can do that is by creating uh, persistent data structures. And these data structures aren't persistent in the sense that they're persisted to a database, which is often how we use the word persistent these days. But what it means is they're persistent in memory. You can copy them, but reference the old value still, or the old, the utilize the old reference, I should say, and see the original data before it was changed. Because you're not actually changing it. You're just creating a new version of it, a new reference which happens to point to some of the old data. So that's using a concept called structural sharing. You're, you're sharing pieces of data in order to craft new data structures. So in your example with the list, you need to copy all the, the elements leading up to the list, but all the old elements after the list, you can change. Or rather, you don't have to change. You can just have your pointer in your linked list point to the old element from the original list and it shares those structures and you don't have to pay the cost of copying all the other stuff. So you don't, you, you save yourself on like memory and that kind of stuff. Right. But what this means is that immutable data structures often are worst case scenario 
the, the worst case scenario times for immutable data structures and algorithms is much worse than with the mutable variants of these data structures. Right. It's just, so why would why, you want to use these? I'm so glad you <laughs> asked that. <laughs> and we, but this is why high performance, you know, languages like uh, I would I would lump like Rust and I would lump uh, definitely uh, Pony Lang, which is a really, really interesting language and people should check it out. It has a lot of really cool stuff in there. Also, the worst name for a language ever. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Pony Lang is don't, really cool, don't. but it has it uses it uses mutable data all over the place because that's a thing that you need at really, really high performance computing levels. You think that this is a worse name than like C plus plus as far as Googling goes? I don't know, man. (laughs) It's pretty rough. Anyway, Uh, sorry. Anyway, (laughs) I digress. (laughs) So, so often we use these worst case scenarios and immutable data structures just perform worse in a worst case, uh, in worst cases. This is not always true, but often uh, because we do all this extra copying, we have to go through these lists in this way. We, we end up in, in worse off scenarios. However, amortized time is not the, or uh, sorry, asymptotic time is not the only way to look at data structures. And in fact, a potentially better way, uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, or a more realistic way to look at them is called amortized time. And the idea, the, the fundamental idea of amortized time is that it takes into account all of the different operations that you actually are performing on this data structure and gives you back a much more holistic picture of how the data structure performs under what I would refer to as like a more real world scenario. And you do this, there's a couple different ways to do this, um, but they basically involve applying, uh, incrementing some sort of credit or counter and then decrementing some sort of credit or counter, depending on the operation that you're doing. And you can use that counter to determine what the cost is of any given operation. So um, let's let's say that you have some foo data structure uh, and you write to it and it costs, well, it, it normally, I'm just going to throw a stupid number. It, it takes one to insert right and it takes anytime you want to read the data structure it takes in right okay or the size of the data structure right so so and when you insert you would get some kind of credit because it's fast right is that well so let's let's talk specifically about um about one of the two (laughs) methods there's two different methods that are used to to model amortized time one is called the banker's method which involves using a system of credits and debits and they act and often the credits and debits um, have to do with the location in the data structure that you're placing the element, et cetera. Uh, and then there's the physicist method. The physicist method is based on the, this kind of concept of, uh, of potential energy, right? So the idea that, you know, if you raise an object up a certain height that increases its potential energy. And that's kind of what is being modeled when you use the physicist method with amortized time. So let's take a list. Let's take something. Good analogy. Thank you. (laughs) Did that make, did that help that make more sense? Uh, A little bit. I I, I don't think I'm complete. It helped me understand why it's called that. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and might have helped me a little bit in coming up with how to decide that potential energy equation. But right. uh, 
but I still am not quite sure how to pick it. So let's let's keep going. <laughs> well, so what you're doing with the physicist method is you're basically picking a potential func- a, pen- a potential energy function, and each operation uh, changes that potential energy. So let's pick a list, right? Um, inserting into a list is O1, uh, a linked list. Putting something, and let's be specific about what we're saying. At the head. Putting something like consing onto a list is O1. Right. Uh, because it's at, you're putting it on the head of the list. So it's very fast to get things to, to get things from the head of the list, either inserting or getting things off the list. It's very expensive or linear time, uh, asymptotic time to get things at the end of the list. Right. No matter how many things are in the list, every time you insert takes the exact same amount of time. Yeah, it's O1. Yeah. Right. Well, if you model this in uh, if you model this with the physicist method, what we might do is we would say that the insert is O1, but it increases the potential energy or the, the potential time cost by one. So every time that we actually run through that, every time we insert something, we're increasing the potential by one. If we want to pop from the, the head of the list and like take the element off, then that's an O1 operation and it reduces the potential energy by one. But then if we want to find something in the list, then what we can do is we can say that it is the cost of the potential energy. So the potential energy cost is what, because if you think about it, you have to run through the whole list, right? But, but the list is only as big as the potential energy of the list. Right. So amateurized cost, it's actually based on whatever that potential function is. And there's more math involved. Like you can uh, you can model like a list is kind of a weird example, uh, but you can model different data structures this way. And you can determine that, well, in fact, uh, amateurized time, there's not really many operations that need to take place in order to search a list or search these data structures. And when you look at amortized time, what you end up finding out is like, one, it, pro- it provides a much more realistic view of the world. Uh, but two, you can open yourself up to much more interesting design problems. And you can design algorithms that have better amortized times, which still, which means that they perform well in a theoretical sense, at least, uh, compared to their, you know, mutable, um, uh, asymptotic time counterparts. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> so the, where now, this gets really, really, really fascinating is like, once you understand these and, and the math is a little bit interesting, like it, it's really basic algebra actually. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's pretty reasonable to like kind of walk through and see what they're doing with the algebra. Like most things in programming, this is tricky in, in concept, right? Like you have to, you have to figure out how to model this in your head, but once you can hold the model in your head, it actually does make sense. Like, and then you're sort of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Then the, the math actually just kind of works out, but learning how to model it in your head is what's hard. All right. So my, my biggest thing that when I'm reading this book is, how so so that potential energy function is called phi right mm-hmm. or phi or however you want to say it my my phi. Greek friend says it's pronounced phi. phi um phi so how do you choose phi how do you pick now, the the potential energy function right 
and that's where he, you know, I, I keep running into like, great. They showed me what they chose in the book, but how do I decide what that is? Right. And maybe it's further in the book, but it's stressing me out at the <laughs> point where I am in the book. Um, and I started the book over thinking I missed something multiple times, which is why I've only made it to like page 50. Right. <laughs> but, um, so, so how do you decide where to choose that? Because it seems like I could get very different amateurized times depending on what fee I choose. Right. So if I get very different amateurized times, <laughs> there has to be a proper way of choosing this or we're just bullshitting ourselves here <laughs> and the numbers don't mean anything. Cause I chose one fee and you would choose a different one and we would come up with different, different numbers, I guess. Right. So I think you have to look at your data structure, number one, and then figure out what it, what operations are moving those potential energies and how they're moving those potential energies. Right. You have to think about like in the list example, you have to think about the fact that, uh, right. Well, when I add something, it's moving that potential for these other operations up. But because I think, yeah, if you just pick it arbitrarily or pick something that's nonsensical, then it doesn't, then yeah, you, you've, you've, you haven't gotten any value out of that. <laughs> my, my amateurized is zero <laughs> time. Um, but I think, you, you know, if you can, uh, if you can figure that stuff out, then it opens up this whole design space to be able to think about other ways of constructing data structures. And honestly, too, to some degree, this stuff is it's very, very interesting. Uh, and it gets very, very interesting when you start talking about laziness, because laziness by its nature doesn't always. It, it, ha it, it interacts very in very, very interesting ways with your potential energy function, let's say. Because if you're not actually creating the data, you know, it didn't really move the, it didn't actually move the potential energy, right? Right. Uh, so there's very fascinating kind of interactions with laziness. But the one thing to keep in mind through this book is that you should seek to understand these things and you should seek to understand how they work with laziness. And, and those things are good to understand on their own. But all of that discussion about amortized time about modeling these functions about laziness etc they're all justification they're all used to justify the rest of the book <laughs> right okay. like he's this these are his proofs on why his immutable purely functional data structures are worthwhile and why they should be taken seriously he's just got two to three chapters worth of you know of context building and justification for why his stuff matters and why it works. But I feel like I really need to, I really need to understand that part, that justification before I move forward. Otherwise I, I I'm not getting it. That's right. Sure. And, and that's fair. And I think you should, you should learn about those things for your own edification. But I also want to encourage people like if, if this mathy stuff is less appealing I don't want to say that you can skip it because it's good stuff to understand, but you can jump to the back and find the data structure you need and build that data structure because it is, he's basically rationalized for you already in three chapters in the, the three chapters prior, why his data structure is worth considering 
and his okay. implementation of it works and, it, yeah, and, and it's fast and et cetera, et cetera. Now see the computer science scientist part of me is like, Hey, I, I really want to know how to do this. Cause when I look at two different data structures, I want to figure out the amateurized time before I pick which one I'm going to use or anything like that. And then the pragmatist in me is like, just freaking pick one and move <laughs> on. And if, and we can spoilers, you know, it's a hash array map. Try that is the, that's the correct data structure. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a finger tree or a hash array map. Try. So it's, it's well, one of the two. Shit, I don't need to read the book. We'll just put that away. We'll move on. Uh, (laughs) Both of which are not covered in that book, by the way. (laughs) Oh, damn it. (laughs) Which book are they covered in? Uh, Well, Hashray Map tries. I mean, the the original Bagwell papers, uh, those are just papers, but they weren't weren't built with persistence or immutability in mind. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was Rich Hickey. It was Closure that took those those uh, bagwell papers and made them immutable and persistent and then and everybody's just copied those since then and if you're looking hash array map try up on the internet it's often referred to by the acronym how much easier hamped hamped which it's much easier to type into google and and you'll probably find it <laughs> but i mean erling a bunch of erling uh, structures are based on hash array map tries now Damn, look how smart Rich Hickey is. He's That's really, it's really, me. yeah. <laughs> the kids, oh, man. the kids call it thought leading. <laughs> <laughs> He's a thought leader. I mean, it is, but yeah, those data structures, I mean, as far as I know, I think people have taken those data structures out of closure and then published them. Like since then. Yeah. Yeah. I've, so. it, that's. I've that was my impression when reading about it, too. I mean, I don't again, this is this is a lot of this is new stuff to me, mm-hmm. uh, like within the last year, two years. Um, so I, I might be a little late on this train, uh, but I'm. I'm super excited. I don't know. I don't even know what else to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll spend some time learning about amateurized time. And then if you get too frustrated, you can move on a little bit and then come back to it. I, okay. I really do think that um, sitting down and so so the 5.1 exercises is uh, implement a, a version of DQ mm-hmm. and then prove that each operation takes big O1 amateurized time using okay. the potential function absolute value of we f minus that. r and you want to do this uh, as a as a like a screencast you think I, we should pair uh, together and screencast it and then put it on the internet for people to judge us yeah i don't mind i mean we already do a podcast we have put ourselves out there to be judged and some yeah, but people there's a difference between people we're great continuously people judging the way that i talk and judging our intelligence <laughs> Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> uh, I mean, we don't have to put our faces do... on there. At least that'll help. <laughs> Just throw some code up <laughs> and, and and implement this thing in Elixir. And we can maybe do and this. Sh- we can maybe do show this. how to do it. And we could probably even use some property testing to prove that our DQ works. Okay, we could probably do. Yeah this this, this could be a whole fun thing. Could be a whole thing. 
Yeah. And then just throw it up for fun. And I think, I think going through the exercise and showing the amateurized time and how we come up with that after we implement it, uh, could be really beneficial, well, at least for me. So mm-hmm. maybe it'll help some other people out too. Okay. All right. I mean, I don't know <clears throat> when we're going to do that. I, <laughs> <laughs> my life is pretty much crazy until September with house moving and everything. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> the good thing is I won't have any distractions because all of our stuff will be packed. So I'll have plenty. Maybe I'll have plenty of time for us to sit down and do this coming up soon. Hey, there you go. I'm going to have an office soon. Sweet. So oh, you're moving out of the house? No, I'm not moving out of the house, but I'm, uh, well, I've been building, like, I've, I've been building, I've been paying someone good currency to build oh, me yeah. an office downstairs. Oh, yeah. All that construction that we've had over the last few episodes yeah, in the background it should be over yeah. now. Sweet. Move, it's move done. In later today. Yep. Nice. Congratulations. I'm so excited. I know. That's like a big, big deal when, when construction is finished. Feels so good. Feels yeah. so good. <clears throat> well, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> oh, is there anything else that we should hit up before we go? Or Well, we were thoughts? supposed to talk about this uh, whole short maps RFC proposal thing, but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know enough. I don't have much of an opinion either way on that at this point. I, think I don't have RFCs. well-formed thoughts about it. Yeah, there was a whole there was a whole thing on the forum about adding a adding features to maps to pattern match on maps that are similar to JavaScript. That's led to just some thoughts about RFCs, but maybe save it for another show. Yeah, yeah. Maybe give the community a little time to to talk about. Maybe we should put a link to to that discussion. No, I think it's good. You, people will find it if they want to. Don't link to it. Don't link to it. I don't need any more people talking in there. Leaks. Yes. <laughs> Hint. Feet. Yeah, we've had so many uh, new words today. Uh, yeah, the word of the day is hamped. Hamped. <laughs> the kids are calling it hampting. <laughs> that is the that is the uh, usage when you are using a hamped it's hampting actually it's a a, a, a hash array mapped try but uh <laughs> it's not try it's tree uh in the original greek <laughs> oh man well i think uh I probably should get get back to trying to move my house. All right. Do you think we've given 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 them enough? I think we've given them enough. We've helped. We've probably okay. given people too much. Uh, I hope not. You want to leave them wanting more. All right. So that's it, everybody. Uh, there's going to be some really cool stuff next week. There. Now you can want some more. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Later.